So we're in Revelation 2 and 3 again, since we're finishing up the churches. And a quick update, my dad got out of the hospital on Friday. He already moved to South Carolina yesterday. It was a long drive for them. Uh, they hit, driving through Maryland is like driving through L.A. County and all that, so it takes a while. It takes a while to get there. They had traffic and rain, all kinds of stuff. But they're at their new house, so he is uh, still in oxygen, I think, for now, for a little while longer. But the doctor said he was able to leave, so that's good. And I think that helps with his spirits, yeah. just getting out of there, getting getting out of the hospital and being being with loved ones and whatnot. So thank you guys for all the prayers. He says thank you as well. I know I told him, I said, the whole church is praying for him. So he said, thank you very much. Uh, because, you know, it's weird that he's in there. He can't really have anybody in. He couldn't see, any, he couldn't see anybody have visitors. So, but they made it, he made it through. So now he's starting a new, new part of his life. So usually, as we're jumping into this, the usual word that we hear for, for church, the Greek word is ecclesia. So that's where we get the word ecclesiastical, ecclesi you know, those types of words. So some people think it means called out or something means the called out ones. Or, or a lot of times it also just means a gathering. It indicates a gathering of people. So it's the church, right? So that is one of the words that gets equated to the word church in our English language. But the actual word church comes from another Greek word called kuriakos, which means belonging to the Lord or just the Lord's, right? So it's possessive. And so as we go from, you know, languages are all kind of tied together. If you go backwards from like English, you, go, you would go through like Germanic and, and Viking Norse words all the way back through history. So Greek, so that Greek word kuriakos kind of gets forced or pushed through into the other languages. So like the Ga Scotch Gaelic word kirk, that kind of has that same shortened version of that, the Greek word, and also the, the kirke for the German word also retains that kind of originality, right? So that word church, the one that we use, really means that we belong to the Lord. And so when I was doing this, all of a sudden this starts making sense where we're just not, we're, we're more than just a gathering, right? We're more than just a gathering of people. We are gathering for a reason. We are gathering for a person. We're here to praise God when we're here to do this. And so that when we call ourselves the church, it has a much stronger sense of who we are and who we belong to. And all of a sudden, right, it becomes what we're doing and why we're doing it and who we're doing it for is, is becomes more than just ourselves, hopefully. Right? We're, we're here to do things for God because God has gifted us with different things. Each of us, we have different gifts and different things, the different aspects of the church that need to happen, the mission. And so that's really what Jesus is getting to with all these all the letters to the churches is that we are belonging to the Lord, so he has authority to tell us, right, what to do, what not to do, how to do it. These are the things because he is the father of the church. You know, God is the father of the church. We, we belong to him, and Jesus is our bridegroom. And so we are the, the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And so when we do this, right, we, we, we belong to him, and so it, hopefully it shifts how we do these things. And so we're going to go ahead and read um, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12. We're going to read 12 through 17. And then we'll get through the rest of the stuff as we go down through it. So here's what the letter to Pergamum. So this is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 
Jesus says, write to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. That you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have also those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the white, on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so that's the letter to the, to the church of Pergamum. And so we see that the main point of this for this week is still the same as last week. Because this is just a continuation of, the, of the, la, the first three churches we did last week. So Jesus leaves clear instructions on how the church can be successful by or maybe according to his standards. Right? And so that's the same thing. Jesus is telling these churches to repent or do something, do something differently. Stop doing whatever it is because it's against what I'm telling you. And here's how to correct yourself. Right? We all like feedback. So he is giving feedback before it gets too late where these people, and we're going to see you through some of the other churches, that if you don't repent, you will suffer the consequences. And so both as a church collective... Right, as one whole church, like the Ephesus church, or individuals, as he says here in a couple of different letters, he calls out the individuals, essentially. He says, I will stop them, and you, other people who are doing the right things, they will be, they will be taken care of and protected, essentially. Right? And so the first part is that Jesus instructs these two churches, Pergamum and Thyatira, which is the last, the last part of chapter 2, he instructs them to teach faithfully. We need to teach the Bible, teach who Jesus is faithfully to the new believers, to people coming in who have questions, who maybe aren't believers yet. We need to make sure we are properly telling those people and us as we, you know, because we don't know everything either. So we're learning as well how and who Jesus is and what he does for us. So starting in verse 12, he sends this messenger, this message to the church of Pergamum. And so Jesus uses his sharp words, which are kind of evidenced by the double-edged sword, the sharp double-edged sword that, that comes out of his mouth. It was talked about in, in chapter 1, verse 16. And later that sword also comes out, again, later before the, Jesus, before the war essentially starts the last big battle. And so he says, you live where Satan's throne is, he tells his church. And so you must live somewhere where there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of turmoil, Maybe he lives in California, right? So he lives somewhere where there's a lot of people who aren't believers. There are a lot of pagans here around you. And you're still holding faith. But you hold fast to my name, he says. You did not deny my faith. So they're living in this city, this area that has a lot of pagans in it, has a lot of non-believers, people who are probably trying to do things against the church. Also the Jews, because when he talks about Satan's throne, a lot of times he's talking to the Jews we're probably trying to throw the Christians off their game, essentially. Say, oh, no, you, don't need, you need to do all these things and then plus, right? It's a, it's a gospel plus message. That's fine. Jesus can save you, but you still need to follow the rules, right? So it's a gospel plus. So then why would I need to have Jesus if all I could do is follow the rules, right? That's an easier. 
It's much easier to follow the rules and put my faith in, in Jesus because I have a list of what to do and what not to do, right? It's easier that way. But what happens is what we see here and then also in Thyatira, the church here, is that they basically let people come in who are teaching pagan ideals, right? They're having people come in to, to kind of mold their religion. I'm going to bring my religion, whatever it was. I'm going to come to this church and say, hey, you know what? I really like when we celebrate this or that or we do this or that. And so all of a sudden it becomes part of what we do. And this is why some people, some of the denominations don't like holidays. Because they think it's just made up. They brought it over from like Halloween. It was brought over from the, the, the Druids at Samhain. So they say, well, we shouldn't celebrate it because it's, it's evil. It was an evil thing. And so, you know, even Christmas trees, Christmas, some people don't celebrate Christmas. Even the Puritans didn't celebrate Christmas at the time. So some people, if you take this and say, all right, we need to get rid of these things... But we need to be on alert. So he, he, Jesus references the teaching of Balaam, which is an episode from Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and then part of chapter 31. But to catch you up, this is the talking donkey story. Right? This is the talking donkey where Balak, who is the king of Moab, he wants the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. So he hires him and says, can you just go curse those people? I want them out of my land. I want to get rid of them. I want to destroy them. And the donkey... You know, God talks through the donkey and says, here you go. This is, I'm God. I'm talking to you. I'm going to lead you over here. You need to not do this. And so ultimately, Balaam would not curse the Israelites because he knew that these people belonged to the Lord. They were the church, right? this nation of Israel. And so this is what, in, in chapter 31 of Numbers, Moses is recalling because there's something similar going on in his camps, right? And so he says, look, don't, remember, don't you guys remember Balaam and Balak? And so this is kind of the conversation of why, because it seems like Balaam does a good job of being faithful to God, even though he's really, it's not really his job. So you think, if you read Numbers 23 25, you're like, okay, Balaam's a good guy. But then there's some conversations that take place that Moses recalls in chapter 31 of Numbers. And this is the, up here on, is what we have, what we think the conversation may have gone like. It says, Balaam's telling Balak, so the prophet is telling the king of Moab, I cannot curse what God has blessed, but you have paid me handsomely, right? So I can't fix your cabinets, I can't fix your house, but you paid me, so I'm going to give you some, some advice. He says, I do, not, I, I do know people very well. He says, these folks have been in the wilderness for a long time, and you have many beautiful men in Moab. I suggest you send your women among them, and my guess is that their behavior will bring down God's curse on themselves, all you got to do is just kind of put some stuff out there and let them ruin themselves. Right? You can't attack them from outside, but let them ruin themselves from the inside. And so that's exactly what happened. So Balak followed, followed his advice. Israel did exactly what Balaam anticipated, and the children of Israel brought the plague and curse on themselves with their own actions. Because they said, oh, this isn't a big deal. It's a, Women from Moab, no big deal. We can make them Jewish. No problem. But that's not the way, every way, the way it works, right? We kind of hear this idea. That's why Paul says, don't be yoked to unbelievers. Because the idea is, oh, I'm going to marry this person. And I'll get them to become Christian. I'll take them to church. I'll do all these things. And many times what happens is the exact opposite happens. I don't want to go to church. Okay, fine. We won't go to church. But let's go next week. Okay, fine. 
right? And soon you're never going to church. You haven't set foot in church. You haven't even driven past a church in however many years, right? And so we need to be on guard because Balaam knew that the way to corrupt people, the way to win is to corrupt things from the inside. And so the teaching of the Nicolaitans, as he talks about, seems to be something similar. Most people, we don't really know what those teachings were, but obviously he meant, Jesus mentions it several times, so it must have been very bad, whatever it was. And so the church of Thyatira, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 28, is something similar as well. They were also infiltrated by somebody on the inside. And so the woman that Jesus compares to her, he calls her Jezebel. And we went through kings with the, with the Ahab story, right? Jezebel was Ahab's wife. And she corrupted Ahab to allow and eventually take over the worship of all the other gods. They were building temples to other gods. They were completely forgetting about Yahweh. All the other things in Thyatira was the church that was actually founded by Lydia from Paul. So Paul converted Lydia. So she was the first European, as we understand geography today, right? The first European to become a Christian that we know of. It was written down. So she was rich. She helped, you know, start this church in Thyatira. So something good happened from a woman who did these things, and all of a sudden now we have this several years later, you know, a couple of decades later, a woman is now trying to ruin this church from the inside. And this is nothing about women. This is just people who are, you're listening to the wrong people. And so the people who are in charge are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. This is like Ahab. He should have said, no, Jezebel, we are Jews. We're going to follow Yahweh. That's it. And that would have been the end of it. And same thing with the pastors of this church. They should have said, no, you're teaching the wrong thing. We need to teach these things. That's what Paul talks about in the letter to, to Timothy where he says allowing women to preach, things like that. And it's not about the women. It's about making sure the right people teach the right things. And as men, we are responsible for the church. Right? It's the same relationship of Christ to the church as, as men to the church as well. We are, the, we are responsible we're not just in charge, but it's our responsibility to make sure that the church is going on correctly. And so people blend religions, right? They take the good stuff, the pleasant stuff that they like about their old religion, and they get rid of the stuff they don't like. They say, well, let's use this, and yet let's use this, and then we'll make you know, a big, weird robot Voltron thing where it looks like a robot, but it's really not. And so they take these things because I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with the forbidden things because they're considered sin, idolatry, adultery, fornication, unnatural relationships. Right? The list goes on. There's several lists in the Bible. But when we do this, and we see this in a lot of the main, what are called mainline churches, right? Methodists, Presbyterians. Sometimes, even, honestly, Southern Baptist churches are sometimes the same way. We try not to be, but we. It doesn't really matter the denomination, but you take and say, well, we need to love everybody. Yes, we need to love everybody, there are, but there are still standards. Right? We, still, we need to do this, but there's still standards. And so we have to walk this line, we have to be in, this, in between the two cliffs to make sure we're going the right path and not running aground on either thing. Too much doctrine, too much love, because we need to have both. And so people will tell you that all oh, love is love. Of course, well, yeah, but... It's, you still, there's, it's still not biblical, biblically correct. So the bottom line, though, is that the church needs to be on guard for who is brought in and what they teach and what they allow. 
And if it violates the biblical standards, the person or people need to be disciplined. And that's what this is right here, right? This is, this is Jesus giving him them a, a nudge or a heads up right now to say, if you don't, this is what's going to happen. But if you do, right, the one who conquers, he gives good news. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And so we know that they're a good idea. So here is, and part of it is that we know that Jesus is going to take care of it all. He's the one that says, I will go fight with them with the sword of my mouth. I, he is going to take care of it. This is his church. He will use the sword to war against those who do wrong. And also in the, the, the church, the Thyatira, he will give the church authority over everyone else. So when it seems like we're losing, eventually we win. Everybody will be subject, put down and put, put the subject under our role. We get to rule with Jesus in a sense. Right, so we will be in charge. So anybody who was these pagans who were running amok in, in the church or, or trying to cause havoc, they will get their, for lack of a better term, comeuppance at the, end of the, at the end of the time, at the end of the age. So here's our application for this part of what we can do as churches, as a church, our church. First thing is we need to be alert for subtle changes. Right, be alert for subtle changes. If somebody comes in here and says... I'm taking over, and this is my gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach the Bible how I want. And I'm gonna, if I say something completely different, most everybody can go, hmm, no, you're not. You are wrong. You're violating the Bible. You've completely mistaken, misconstrued the Bible, whatever. Everybody's smart enough in here to go, no, get off the stage. But if someone comes in and over the years they want to blend Mormonism, and I'm not necessarily picking on Mormons, but... but this is kind of what came to mind. If, if people want to blend Mormonism with Christianity, it may go unnoticed because they sound similar. Right? They use the same terminology. They use the same words. And it sounds similar enough. So people are like, okay, I get it. We're, we're on the same page. But when you press people like the Mormons on their terms, like the Son of God, you're going to find out there's two very different definitions for that phrase. One that the Christians believe is all the Orthodox Christians in the world understand who Jesus is as the Son of God and He is God versus He is the Son of God, but He's a God. Right? They're two different things. That little article in there throws everything off because it just makes it all, it makes it completely different because a God doesn't have as much authority as the God. And so depending on what happens is you can sit there and have a conversation with the Mormons all day long and they come to your house and ask for if you want to help and all the other things. And you can say things like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. And you're, and you're just kind of not really knowing it. And so they do it slowly. And all of a sudden, you're basically, a, we're a, we would basically become a Mormon church. And that should never happen. Right? We need to be alert for these subtle changes and know the definitions. The second thing is the way to help this is to be faithful to the word. Right? Be faithful to the word. And so this word, the word, word, I want to make sure we understand has two different uses here. One, it's the Bible. And two, the biggest thing is it's the Logos or Jesus Christ, right? God, Jesus is the living word. He is the big W word. And so we need to know and be faithful to both. And it sounds easy enough, but it's a good reminder that the Bible helps you, helps us recognize false teachers. If I say stuff, and I've said it before, if I say something that seems wrong or crazy or whatever... Please tell me. 
Because sometimes what I intend to say, when what I do say, may be two different things. And that's fine, right? Because sometimes I don't, I don't write everything down. Or sometimes it just may be a confusion or something. Or maybe I need help explaining things better. Right? I'm constantly improving as well. So this is the key to keep all of us straight. Right? It, it, it helps me. It helps you. It helps everything. And so this is guidepost. It helps us recognize who the false teachers are. Because once, once in a while making a mistake or, or not being able to explain certain things is okay. But if I'm constantly taking things out of context, then that's a problem. Right? That's a problem because now I'm not giving you the proper idea of what the, what the author actually meant. And so we can also recognize Christians with this as well. If everybody shows up here and we all believe, especially the big rocks, we all believe the, the first and second tier things, are all, we're all pretty much on the same page, easy peasy. We get down to the third level of like what, like what, what we're talking about in Revelation of how things are going to happen or not happen or when. Those are kind of up for grabs and they make for good debate. They make for fun learning as well. But it's not a re- prerequisite. That's not going to be a test to get into heaven. It's just good to know and it's interesting. We should be aware of why we believe what we believe. Because we all falter. We're, all not, gonna, we're not gonna get everything 100%, but we can be more like Christ when we know what that really means and that the way we get it is from the Bible. Because we, sh- we see what he acted like. We see what God is like. He's, loving, he's full of loving kindness. He is love, so we should be loved. But he also wants the, the right understanding of who he is, so we need to be under, have that understanding. And this is part of our spiritual formation and our growth as we grow up. And so one, mark, one main mark of the Protestant church is uh, theologian Louis Burkhoff says, and it's, this is the most important mark of the church, is the true preaching of the word. Right? This, is, this is how you tell if you're in a good Bible-based church or not, is the preaching of the word. You can listen to the preacher, and everybody has their own kind of styles, but you can understand and get and know and learn the Bible. And Burkhoff says that the true preaching of the word is the great means for maintaining the church and for enabling her to be the mother of the faithful. Right? We're here as a church to be nurtured and grow up. Right? The church is the mother of all of us. This church, hopefully, we're making adults, essentially, just like as any good parent would be. And that's why we go through the books the way we do, or we at least go through larger chunks of some of the longer books or like, you know, the Old Testament stuff for me is a little harder to just go straight through, but we can do big chunks of it because the stories are there and it helps fill in the blanks with this. Right? We do that most of the year because it prohibits me, it prohibits us from cherry picking the stuff we want and avoiding the stuff we don't want. Right? I have to get to verse five. I have to go through verses two through three or two through four as well. So if one, and one through four is the happy stuff, verse five is the, the, the mean stuff, I can't skip it. I have to, get, I have to do that too. And so we, we have to help, it helps us understand and set our cases for what's going on. The last thing is we have to be patient. So Jesus will arrest, so that term I mean by stop, he will stop, he will, and he will judge the false teachers, the non-believers, and the pretenders, who pervert God's word for their own gain. You see this in churches all the time where great pastor, he's a great public speaker, great teacher, whatever, but he doesn't really believe it. And there's been several people the last couple of years that have left the faith and said, I, I was 
this great, well-known, national, international known person, it was all a lie, basically. I don't believe it anymore. And it's, it's hard to live in a church like that where you're like, I listened to this guy, I, I, I took everything he said, and all of a sudden it seemed like it was fake. Well, he's, not talking, he's talking about Jesus, and hopefully you're getting a good teaching about Jesus, so what that is is not fake. And Paul says in Philippians, no matter what their purpose is behind preaching, the gospel gets out there, so that's a good thing. Right? So, but it is difficult to say, well, I believe this guy. Maybe I'm a fool. And so he will, Jesus will use the sword and he will put them under our rule. He will put them, he will punish them. And so this is the equivalent of a, of a bullied kid becoming his high school bully's boss. And so the question for us is, as the one who is bullied, and this is not a great, a great example, but at the same time, it's the best thing I can figure out as far as how to explain this. For the one who has been, a, has been bullied, essentially, how are you going to lead that other person? How are you going to deal with those people when you're in charge of them? How are you going to show grace in God's love? Are you going to bully them back? Which is what the world, what the world would do, act like the world, and be by the world's standards? Well, of course, eye for an eye, just go for it. You have every right. No, we should be living and knowing that Jesus is going to take care of all the things eventually. So we need to be patient and live through those certain situations. And so this brings us to the last two churches of, and how we live for Jesus. And so for the last two churches, uh, Sardis and Laodicea, which are in chapter 3, Jesus is really instructing us, the churches, how to live for him. And so it's the, the last or the first and the last church in chapter 3. That's the two churches. And so the first part is, is the church of Sardis. And he says, be alert and strengthen. So let me go back up to verse 1. So chapter 3, verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. All right, so he's calling this church out. And so this question is really is, is this relationship between reputation and reality. So it sounds like this church of Sardis had a great reputation, like, oh, they're awesome, they're a great church. But really, they had people who were not living and not fully on board with everything. This, this reputation of the church of Sardis was their life. A lot of times people get, get, get wrapped up in what people think. And so everything's an act, essentially. Everything's kind of a... a you know, a show or put on, essentially. Because the reality is that they, this church was dead. And a lot of times you can go into churches and kind of figure out really quickly which one's which. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, this, this church, nothing, there's nothing here. They, they have a cool big sign, but nothing's going on inside, you know. And so there's probably a reference to this fabled history of the city that with a citadel... They thought it was impregnable, right? So everybody who lived in the Sardis, as it changes names over the centuries, they thought this is a great, big, powerful city. It's, we're super safe. We have a, a big fortress. But the fortress had fallen at least twice and maybe three times. So it's, it's not impregnable if it had been taken over several times already. And so the church, as well as the city, maybe seemed to be living in a dream world, and they thought they were doing much better than they really were. 
And so Jesus calls the members to wake up. Stop living this dream. Stop pretending like you guys are awesome because you're not. The stuff you're doing isn't motivated the right way. It's not doing, you're not working for me. Your works do not, they're not complete before my God is what he says. And so Jesus calls them to wake up and get down to the real work that they're called to do. And so the church at Laodicea there, starting in verse 14 to the end of the chapter in 22, is something similar as well. It's, it's kind of a similar question. He compares the church to being lukewarm. Now remember, we went through this a couple, year, couple years ago. Where Laodicea is, there's two springs. There's a hot springs and a cold springs, kind of close. So the water would run. They piped it into the city. And as you know, who likes to take lukewarm showers? Nobody, right? Nobody likes to take lukewarm showers. Lukewarm water is really not good for anything. It doesn't kill your germs if you're trying to wash your dishes. It doesn't soothe your muscles if you're tired, you're taking a bath. It doesn't refresh your thirst on a hot day because it's not cold enough to kind of cool you down. It just is what it is. Now, it'll make your mouth wet and it'll kind of hydrate you. That's fine, but it doesn't taste good. You know, it's like drinking that, that first burst of water out of the hose of when we were all kids. You, you forget, and it's like super hot or just been there long enough. It's like, oh, you know, and then it's like, oh, okay, cold water, good. So lukewarm water is just there. It just is what it is. And this church in Laodicea was just there, it seems like. Just kind of meh. You know, I'm here. We, we come on Sundays. We do our thing. We leave. We go home, right? That's, that's, that's what this church is. And, and they should have known better. They should have gotten through there. And so there are a lot of churches that have a good reputation, but they're dying or rotting on the inside. And there are a lot of churches that are essentially dead and just playing church. Because either they don't know how to get moving forward, they, did, they don't care. Right, uh, with everything going through our stuff, I read a lot of books on revitalization and dying churches. You know, they want to argue over the, the, the carpet color. They want to have a, a very adamant fight in a business meeting about that. But they don't want to spend, they don't even care or discuss should we go out and evangelize the neighborhood. Right, because what's going on in here is much more important than what's going on out there. And it should be exactly, it should be the other way around. I don't care what color carpet we have. I don't even need carpet. Whatever. We have a stone floor, who cares? Right? Now, it should look nice. I get it. I understand that's a part of that. That's part of the game. I get it too. But the, the right amount of effort should be focused on the right things. Right? So take five minutes, pick a carpet color out and go with it. Let's spend an hour, the 55 minutes, talking about how we're going to evangelize the neighborhood. Right? That's being passionate, being hot water or cold water, where people know where we stand. And so he calls these churches to live for him, to wake up, to get going and get moving because we are his representatives. We are his ambassadors on this earth. And so here's an application for this piece. is one, we need to make disciples. It's our number one job, make disciples. How we do that is our, up to us. Right? Whether we have block parties every week, whether we go out and talk to people every week, whatever it is, that's our job is to make disciples. So Matthew 28, Mark 16, that's, they're the Great Commission. We are called to go out. Go out into the world and make disciples. And that means we have to be active, we have to be alive, we have to be bringing people in, then taking them where they are and bringing them here and teaching them. Like dying churches only look on the inside, fake Churches only care about increasing their numbers. 
Right? They just care about getting all the people in. So you have, like, you see the bigger mega churches that have, like, an Easter egg hunt or something, and they'll have, I saw, we read one thing that had, um, they actually had a helicopter dropping eggs from, they were dropping the Easter eggs from the helicopter. And they didn't really think about it because they had some big field, I guess, and they didn't really realize that, one, you can't really drop eggs from the helicopter anyway, but they didn't realize the amount of dust would be kicked up with all the people around. And they said it was pretty much like chaos, things getting blown around and little kids getting <laughs> thrown around, I guess. Right? Because they only care about people coming, like, come to the big event. Come to the big, hey, were you there? No, well, you missed out. And that should be part of the thing where, yes, you're missing out by not coming to Red Oaks. That should be a real thing. That, But what are you missing out on? You're missing out on Jesus. You're not missing out on Easter eggs and TVs and whatever we're giving away because we're not giving away stuff. We're giving away grace and hope through Jesus. That's what we're giving away. That's what people need to hear and be here for that. So that's our job here. We're, we don't want to just keep up appearances, right? We want to be like the oak tree that we're named for because slow growth is sturdy and steady growth. Right, so the second point of this to go along with this is so we don't need to be concerned with the world and what they say. So Romans 14.8, Paul says, if we live, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So what we do is what we do. And we do it for the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. We know where we're going. We know who we serve. We know why we're here. The church belongs to the Lord just as we do. And so what happens is going to be his will, hopefully. That's what we are trying to aim for. We are to work heartily for the Lord, as Colossians 3, and 23 say. Because that's our part. We are supposed to work for the Lord heartily. And if we try to serve two masters, we're going to always disappoint one of them. Right? So which one, which master do you want to serve? God is the one that you bring, you belong to, and he is consistent with his love and his expectations, for lack of a better term. He is the same from before time began. God does not mature. He doesn't need to get better. He doesn't need to grow up. He is perfect. Or do you want to try to serve the ever-changing world? Right? I talked, we started this, right? What is hip? If you ask that today, it's going to be different than tomorrow. Different from five years ago, ten years ago, you see, and you see the church changing things, their, their tactics to try to get with the new thing or whatever. And so we're always behind because we're cha- we're playing catch up. Instead of doing certain things, now not all that research is bad, but but we need to be careful of what we do with it. So this ever changing world, right? What is acceptable? What is popular? It changes from minute to minute, and you'll be bouncing around like a pinball on a Kiss pinball machine. Just going around, hoping you don't go down the hole. So Jesus, so wrapping it up, right? Jesus gives his churches these assessments in chapters 2 and 3. And, he, and, and, and I imagine that we would receive similar report cards as well at different times in our church life. We may have hit all these things at one point in our life as a church. Right? And we're going to continue to go back and forth with these, but if we... Keep and be mindful of these, these ideas of what he's telling these churches. It keeps us straight and narrow, right? So if you're, if you're walking, walking in a straight line is more efficient, right? Instead of walking over here, then walking over here, then walking over here. You're going to walk four times as more if you're zigzagging. 
You're going to spend a lot of energy. But if we as a church can stay kind of on the straight path as much as possible, we have the right amount of energy left over to do what we're supposed to be doing. And we're not just chasing rabbits and we're not, we don't care what the world says. We're just doing what God wants us to do. And so because this is the rubric, this is the guide points for us that we can help keep us living for Jesus and help represent him on, here on earth. So that's the most important thing, right? So we need to do what Jesus says and listen and hear, because that's repeated after every letter. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Right? That's repeated every single time. And it's not just there for the church. Each church, each church got all the same letters. They read all of them. So let us, let us hear, let us listen, and let us remember that this church belongs to the Lord. And so next week, starting with chapter 4, that really starts the whole revelation as it is, right? That's the, this is where the fun stuff gets into it, where we get, start getting talk about dragons and all these symbols and whatever else they are. So this will be the fun stuff. This is kind of the end times prophecy piece of it. This was just the, the precursor to... If you're not doing these things, this is what you have to look forward to. Or if you are doing these things, some of the stuff is what we have to look forward to. So if we're good, we're good. If we're bad, it's very bad. All right, so the band's going to come up. We're going to do the last couple songs. Read these things, right, because this church is us. So we need, I need everybody's help to make sure we're, we're abiding by what Jesus says in, these, in this church, to these churches. It's not just me doing it, it's all of us, right, especially as Baptists. So let's go ahead and stand, and we'll sing our last couple songs.